6.30 Chad Afternoons with Jalen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 6.30 Chad. As we continue to watch the war in Ukraine unfold, we are seeing what is being called the fastest mass migration in Europe in at least three decades. Um, experts are, are prompting comparisons with the Balkan Wars of the 1990s and uh, looking even farther back in, in the displacement of people following World War II. The latest numbers that I have seen, we're looking about 870,000 people so far who have fled Ukraine. And uh, we're seeing harrowing stories of walking for 20, 24 hours, um, women, children leaving with nothing, uh, but maybe some toilet paper and uh, the family pet trying to get to safety. What, while, while the battle continues in Ukraine, and we continue to watch that and, and the reaction and um, the sanctions being put in place from countries around the world on Russia, there is growing concern and uh, growing concern about how that mass exodus is going to affect countries around Ukraine. What does it mean for these refugees? And, and where will they go for safety? And I wanted to get into this more this afternoon with Dr. Emily Regan-Wills, who is Associate Professor of Political Studies and Transnationalism at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Regan-Wills, also the co-director of Community Mobilization in Crisis. It's an organization you can find out more about it at uh, CMIC. Uh, hyphen mobilize.org. Dr. Regan-Wills, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, when you're taking a look and you're seeing that number and you hear that number, 870,000 people so far, and there's, there's, there's talk that it could go well into the millions, how do you describe what, uh, what, what the world is witnessing when it comes to uh, the mass exodus out of Ukraine? Well, what we're seeing in this particular moment is we're seeing that the the people are leaving very quickly. Um, it, these numbers aren't unusual on a global scale, right? The the projections go as high as about four million yeah. for Ukraine, which would make it one of the largest one of the largest refugee uh, flows in the world right now. But it's what we're seeing is the kind of very predictable first stages, which is everyone who gets out can at these early stages, and then there are some people who are going to wait and see if it's going to actually get bad enough to be worth it. The other thing we see is people first move within country, becoming what's called internally displaced people, and only cross the border either if they're already close to the border, mm. because if you're already close, why not, mm -hmm. um, or if they find that they've moved outside of the city, but the war is still coming to them. So we're very much in the early days right in, now. In the early days. So, you know, when you take a look at these numbers, as, as I mentioned, and you had mentioned the four million number, and I've seen that that number as well. What does that mean for Ukraine in in for a country when you have that mass exodus of people leaving a country? What does that mean for the country in the months, the years ahead? Let's say when this is all said and done. So it's really going to depend on how long this war lasts and what choices people make in both the short and long term. Most refugees want to return to their country of origin. They've only left in their minds for a short period of time. Mm. And while we've seen many conflicts globally where that has not been possible for people to return, it is possible that if that um, 
Ukrainians will be able to return, that they'll stay temporarily in neighboring countries, and that they'll be able to return to Ukraine in short order. Um, that may not be the case, in which case there will become a question of whether they will stay in neighboring countries or how many will stay in neighboring countries versus how many will move on to other countries where they have friends and family or work prospects or those who will return but to a different part of the country where it's more secure for them. So in some cases, it's going to depend the speed with which the conflict resolves, if it does. And, and when you talk about the speed of things, I'm wondering about... Um you know, the neighboring countries or even, let's say, Canada, who have said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll open the doors to um, uh, the Ukrainian refugees. The speed in which that process can happen, I mean, it's not a wiggle your nose, click your heels together and paperwork is done. Oh, absolutely not. There's a whole set of processes begin with first registering people, yeah. right? And then there are a number of steps whereby essentially the vulnerability of various people are assessed and certain people are designated for resettlement before they would move on to a third country under the principles of, of refugee resettlement, right? The three pillars of the refugee system, they are, you know, return to original country if safe, integration into the immediate neighboring host mm -hmm. country, or resettlement, which is generally in a third country, which is generally reserved for people who have additional protection needs or strong family ties in those third countries. So we may see forms of migration from Ukrainians who have family in Canada or in other parts of Europe who may say, "Well, you know what? I'm going to ha I'm going to see if I can get into those countries because I'd rather be with my family there." But for a lot of cases, it's better for them to wait in the nearby countries to see if it's going to be possible to return home. And remember, in many cases, people have family in the neighboring countries as well. Yeah. So those connections help support these mass movements. And there's the huge pressure on those neighboring countries right now to, to take care of these folks, right? Yes. You know, and this is why the UN has a reasonably good system for moving in at the first days of these, and so they're trying to set up um, mechanisms for tracking people as they cross the border, making sure they have people's information, making sure they're able to get people the paperwork they need in order to be able to access what they need once they've entered a new country. It's tremendously complicated. It can be very bureaucratic because it's really a process of person and paper distribution at this point. When you take a look uh, at um, the lineups and, and the flow of people leaving Ukraine, I mean, it's important to remember that that, that flow har doesn't include or hardly includes any men between 18 and 60 because um, the government has said you, you have to stay to fight unless there's a medical condition. When it's women and children mainly, doctor, does that impact or change the way that it has to be handled? So frequently, the first thing is it will create sympathy, often populations, if they understand that these are families that have been split up and that, that not all the members were able to get out. And this is unfortunately something we see in too many conflict zones. It's only unusual in Ukraine because it's the state army that's recruiting people as opposed to non-state militias that recruit people on the way out, which is a story I've heard many times in Syria, unfortunately. Um, but I think what it does create is the kind of 
you know, are people going to be there long enough that they're going to need to be economically self-sufficient? They're going to need to find work. Mm -hmm. They're going to need to not stay in a camp on the border but need to move into housing. And that creates additional problems if you have families that have just lost one of their parents temporarily or, unfortunately, permanently. And also, um, if again, if, if that parent was the breadwinner, right? So. Um, the UN has particular policies in place for female-headed households, so in these scenarios where the men have been conscripted, there are policies in place to make sure that these households get extra protection, but it's just another trauma on top of all the rest of it for these folks. Do, do you believe that there are um, maybe some perceived attitudes or, you know, I'm wondering about how some refugees may be accepted into other countries uh, compared to uh, maybe other refugees that we've we've seen leave their countries, for example, you know, Syria, Afghanistan, in in uh, in other recent conflicts. We've even heard some challenges of some folks uh, trying to cross the border who who had been working in in Ukraine, maybe from Nigeria or wherever it was, but having some challenges. Are is is that a real thing? It is a real thing. The way that countries think about who their neighbors are and who they accept very much based on all sorts of global hierarchies. And we've had years and years of imagining a crisis of desperate refugees from the global south trying to get to Europe. And Europe is, is acting right now just like every other country on the edge of a border, which is to say, of course we'll take in our neighbors, right? This is what Syria's neighbors did starting in 2011. This is what Afghanistan's neighbors have been doing. So it's, of course, very natural that Europe is saying, of course we'll bring in Ukrainians. How could we not? But unfortunately, they haven't been used to, they've been doing this on the background of saying, well, we're scared of migrants. We think the migrants are dangerous. We think that they're bringing something very foreign to us. And so it really does kind of show the way that countries' decisions, whether or not to accept newcomers, whether they're coming because of war, because of economics, because of other sort of crises like environmental crises, it very much depends how they think about those other people. So, you know, the countries around Ukraine are absolutely doing the best thing that they can be doing right now, which is letting people in freely. All of us should be thinking of mobilizing how we can support Ukrainians in achieving safety in this moment of attack, but it's also worth remembering that the stories we're hearing out of Ukraine are the same, same stories we hear from war around the world and people needing to move because of conflict. The difference here is, one, that it's in Europe, and two, that it's a state versus state war as opposed to a civil war. And those don't make any difference for the people who are suffering through it. Dr. Regan Wills, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your insight into this. Appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Yeah, take care. Dr. Emily Regan-Wills is a professor of uh, political studies and transnationalism at the University of Ottawa. Again, I mentioned it earlier, the co-director of Community Mobilization in Crisis.